you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lulovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, this is Joe, And I'm Lucy. Welcome back to the Juggle Podcast. If you're in our Facebook community, you might have noticed something a little bit different in the last couple of months. Things have been a bit quieter than usual, and for that, I apologize. My excuse, I hope, is a good one, and that is that I am pregnant. Woohoo! Woohoo! So exciting. Um, <laughs> it's been a welcoming, so we are very, very excited. But apparently, I don't make a very good pregnant person. And so <laughs> I have had a tough couple of months, definitely a tough few months. And so I've kind of just paired back on most things and have just about been getting through day to day. So sorry that we've been a bit quieter than usual, but that is the reason why. Yeah, I don't really have much of an excuse other than the fact that I feed off my energy. <laughs> So um, it was all we could do really to make sure that the podcasts were coming out every week <laughs> and that Lucy wasn't feeling too sick um, and could make it through recording an episode. So <laughs> I'd like to say I haven't been that bad, but I really have been that bad. So there we go. But <laughs> but anyway, it's very exciting and we look forward to talking about your progress over the next few months. Do you want to tell everybody when baby's due? Baby is due in February 2019. So coming up. It's very exciting. So exciting, especially because it's not me. Because <laughs> you're not the one feeling this way, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's also good because it inspired us to think about things from, I guess, a different perspective. And we have a whole episode dedicated to coping with pregnancy at work or not coping if you're me or just some tips to help you maybe better cope. So that's coming up in a few weeks. So listen out for that one. And today's episode, similarly, we thought we'd take a change of pace from talking about you and how you're dealing with work to think about more again how you're dealing with things at home. So we're talking about parenting. Now we asked in our Facebook group and you had lots of questions for our early childhood education professional and we do ask all of them in the interview today. So for future if you want to have your questions asked of our experts make sure you join us on Facebook in the Juggle community where we will ask you for any questions that you might have of our special guests and encourage you to ask your questions too. So like Lucy said, today's special guest is an early childhood expert. Her name is Mandy Richardson and she has a natural passion and love for children. She's the director of Raise Early Childhood and works with families in a number of ways as they navigate the early years of parenthood. She coordinates parent and child classes in the community as well as supporting parents through Skype, cafe discussion nights and attending mothers groups. Mandy's focus is on helping parents and people who work with children to form new and respectful perspectives. She has a master's in human services in childhood studies, and she's currently undertaking a PhD in respectful parenting methods. Mandy also facilitates the playgroup that I take Lily to. So I've had quite a few discussions with her about parenting, and she really is one of the not so many people who I look to for parenting advice. And I really do value and respect her opinions. But Mandy credits her greatest lessons to the experience of raising her own young children with her husband. So take a seat and relax and enjoy this episode. And I'm sure that you will get an idea or two from the advice that Mandy shares. I know I definitely did. Hi, Mandy. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me on today. Oh, it's great to have you here because we've got so many questions for you, not just from us, but from also people in our Facebook community. So we want to start though, Lucy and I, with um, I think something that every working mother asks themselves, which is, are we harming our kids by being working mums? That's a good question. And isn't there so much debate about that still in our day? Can you believe it? But to be honest, I was the non-mum. So I was an early childhood teacher who was not yet a mum myself who probably did used to have the view of why are all these women having children to then have other people praise them. And I did used to uh, struggle with the idea that I would have a lot of children in my care. And you know, I remember one year having a child in my care whose mum I didn't meet the entire year. And I remember feeling a little bit struggling with the idea that I hadn't even met this person's mum. And she also did evidently have a few social difficulties and I used to wonder is it because of this and and obviously becoming a mum myself and also just gaining different knowledge over the years I have obviously come to encompass a much broader perspective on the topic (laughs) and obviously there have been many studies it is a topic of great interest and there have been many many studies looking at particularly motherhood employment maternal employment and there's a wide range of outcomes that have been suggested and and some of them are Oh, that you know, there's there's no difference, especially over the age of three. Much uh, much studies been done recently saying, well, you know, there's no difference in, in long-term outcomes for the child who has the mother working and the child who doesn't. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that in the earlier years, especially the first year, that there are some differences. And although there are so many different studies being done and lots of varying outcomes, one thing that I did come across when I was looking at the studies was that maternal employment per se is not actually the major issue in child development. And um, I think this is logical, to be honest, and that there's actually greater influences to this in the way the parents do handle and navigate the idea of both parents working and the discussions around that. So is it more than about the engagement and interaction with the child in those early years as opposed to simply saying a mum shouldn't work? Yes, I see, and this is where I think it is a, it is a debate that I, I do believe is becoming unfair to sort of suggest that the stay-at-home mum maybe providing a better future for their child because there's lots of other factors and and some of them that they do mention is is like you said it's that quality of relationship so the daily ongoing relationship between the mother and the child and one of the studies really talked about the woman's effective state so the way they manifest their style of caregiving when they are with the child has a major influence because depending on the time you're with that child, if there's a predictable routine around times you are engaging with that child, especially in that first year, obviously the quantity of time does come into play to a degree because any relationship we have, if we're not with somebody, we can't understand them and Mm. form a a unique relationship with them. But certainly that does not mean it has to be an all-day, every-day. And as both all three of us know, when we have these new babies in our care, much of the time those those were the ones are sleeping for long yes. periods and, yeah. and do, do we sit right next to the cot to be present but you know we can use our brains and do other things but obviously in those early months the, the baby is looking for an attachment figure and they're testing out can they trust the world and and so there definitely is an important period of attachment where the child does need to know they've got a secure caregiver Mm. And also many times the reason the maternal role has been investigated so much in regards to work is because we've obviously been carrying these babies, we've birthed them and many times there's feeding involved as well. 
And we're the traditional caregiver. Yeah, yeah. So it's been something where that has been the only person seen to, to fulfill that role. And nowadays, you know, there's, I obviously love listening to the podcast that you and Lucy bring every week because there is an important need to discuss around flexible work, especially in those first few months where, you know, can we still have opportunities to feed our babies? Can we still have opportunities to be those attachment figures? But then can we please still utilise our skills? And do other things as well. Yeah, especially as they rest in and things like that. So. so from your experience of having your own two children and all the research that you've done in the last however many years, your personal opinion on whether we're harming our kids by being working mothers has changed? Absolutely. My opinion, especially like I said unshared, it's amazing mm. how an opinion can shift so much. Mm. So... For instance, my first child, I actually was a stay-at-home mum for that first entire year. And I can also now see on the other side of how being a stay-at-home mum comes with it just as many opportunities to not engage in a connected relationship with your child. In fact, sometimes you can have your entire week scheduled with hundreds of play dates, swimming lessons, and sometimes also barely actually connect in a meaningful way with your own child because you can fill up the day and obviously even these days with social media and and phones, how can we judge the mum at home and the mum at work? I think it's more about being able to be accountable with how we are spending our time engaging with our children and having a relationship with them. So I definitely think the issue is broader than are you a working mum or are you a stay-at-home mum? I think it's more of we're all loving mums and how are we connecting with our children and and making that parent-child relationship predictable and positive. I think the really interesting thing from what you've mentioned is, and I haven't read a lot of research around these kinds of things. I prefer to kind of blaze my own trail and do what feels right to me and, you know, read bits and pieces here and rely on my psychologist sister when I need to. (laughs) I think the interesting thing for me is that some of the research seems to be directed at whether or not a mum needs to stay at home with their child. And I'm curious how much of the research is directed at it being more of a, does a child just need an attachment figure, any attachment figure, not just a mum? And does a child, and you know, I know that there's research around what a child needs in terms of interaction with people to develop the brain and and all of those things that develop in those early years. They need those interactions with people. So how much of this research is specific towards what a mum needs to do and how much of it is specific towards what a baby needs to develop and become fully formed and developed and a good contributor to society? Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting that you say that. Much of the research I actually am um, embarking on, especially in the area of first-time parents, is actually taking a method and a model that was actually used in Budapest by a pediatrician, and she taught unqualified young girls after World War II to have quality caregiving relationships with children who were in institutional care, who were in orphanages, who did not have parents and provide this attachment and quality caregiving and predictable care routine and sensitivity to these children who had no parents. And that was one of the most interesting studies that then took place when they they tested these children's outcomes later in life. And their outcomes were amazing in terms of their resilience and their well-being, overall well-being, by this particular sensitive care and so this is why I actually find it fascinating and why I'm interested even in parent education is is sometimes 
even out, you know, as mums, and I found this personally for myself, I wish I'd sort of even known that particular model of having a really intimate relationship with my daughter before being the mother of my firstborn, because it wasn't just my natural motherliness that, you know, I had to really learn. Well, none of us know, do we? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and absolutely. And you sort of stumble upon things. And I just, I agree with you in the sense that I do believe there are certain ways of being with children that can cause their outcomes and their well-being to be developed. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that, you know, in an ideal world, sure, it's wonderful if it's both parents and that they're our own offspring. But like the situation, this was children who didn't have caregivers, yet they still got a beautiful, secure developmental opportunity by having quality care. And, And sometimes it's quality care doesn't necessarily mean quantity it can be you say we are working mums what I've really learned to do is build some predictability in our in our family life where I know that there's certain periods of the day that I am 100% present with my children and that is where I know that every day that value won't be shifted because I will be investing in them and it's also making sure that when they're not with you that they're with other caregivers that are providing what it is that you want your kids to be provided with. Absolutely. And that's one of the really important things that a lot of this research was saying in, in fact, that if in those early days, um, over three, they really do tend to say the quantity and quality of time between the parents is not quite as significant as under two. But certainly under two, they actually do suggest that when you are selecting your childcare decisions and caring options, that you are looking at these primary outcomes that children need. So, for instance, that secure attachment with professional caregivers. So when you are looking for care, you're wanting to look for sensitive caregivers. You're wanting to look for someone that one, probably definitely under one, you're wanting to look for one person more so than multiple caregivers. So Mm. daycare can be a wonderful environment, but um, and more and more, even the work I do do with daycare is about talking to them about primary caregiving structures where they are going to have children in their care, that they have four children that are their primary children, that they know that that is their their child, almost so that the, pet, the children don't have to keep getting used to a new face on rotation, yes. so that they can have that opportunity. So there's definitely options, and that's where I would encourage parents to make confident decisions. And I'm sure both of you will find this so interesting, that one of the things I mentioned in the study a lot is that it's mum's guilt and feeling bad about how they spend their time actually fares worse on the child's outcome. So if you're going to make a decision to work, then have a confident decision about the fact that that's what you've decided and choose good care is that you're also confident about and the child will feel your confidence and they won't feel your guilt and neglect. We pass that on to the child. Yeah. It's interesting. You just answered one of the questions from one of our listeners, which was whether it's better to have a daycare, send your children to daycare or a nanny. Is it better for them to have connection with one person or for them to be socializing with other children? And I think you've just touched on the answer there. But I want to just take you back a bit to what you, you started to talk about your own research and you're doing your PhD in what you call respectful parenting. Could you tell us more about your approach to parenting and parent education and I guess as part of that, tell us what do you mean by respectful parenting? Yes, yeah, certainly. So respectful parenting, I think the, the core message of respectful parenting is it sounds basic and, and like we all understand it, but the outworkings of it can be quite different in the fact that we really do want an authentic child to emerge, a child who is 
truly an own new brand new individual and we also want an authentic parent-child relationship to develop and I, I guess the word authentic is, is a genuine sincere one and I know that seems like well if we just love our children that all happens but as children have sensitive periods of development sometimes the typical style of parenting we've seen for many generations can really be heavily focused upon I guess having a parent agenda where we really want to formulate well-meaning citizens and I'm in charge and I will show you what yeah, and, how and you all development exactly and yeah. I get you and train you and make sure you know right from wrong and make sure you know the consequences of right from wrong and and none of that is necessarily negative but this new respectful approach that I'm really interested in is it's more about really I guess uh, a lot of research calls it autonomy supportive parenting mm. we recognize the child as an, uh, an individual from very young from brand new and we have meaningful conversations and we respect their bodies and their independence from a very young age. And that can be very simple. So even for a young baby or who's six months and you're dressing them, it's inviting them to be an active participant in their own care. So things like, I'm going to hold the sleeve here. Can you put your hand through? And then just waiting and you'll see some children as young as six months pop their hand through and it's just sort of giving room for them to be an individual from the very beginning. And what this does is it actually creates a very cooperative parent-child relationship so that once they're getting into the age of two when they're really seeking autonomy, children are able to then sort of be used to this way of being with their parents where the, the parent is not necessarily always in charge and in control. Of course, we're setting limits and we're helping them follow through with limits and things like that, but, but little things that will help them to make their own decisions and smart decisions. Like I've got my five-year-old and even last night she went to get a little chocolate egg out the fridge and I said, oh, you'd be grabbing a chocolate egg just before dinner. And she said, oh, yeah. And I said, I said oh, do you, think that, do you think that that'll taste better before your dinner or after your dinner? And she said, oh, I actually think it'll taste better after my dinner. So, you know, instead of having <laughs> to drum straight in there all the time and be like, no chocolate eggs before, you know, just all that sort of pressure that around. That sounds wonderful. But I know with my kid, they'll be like, yeah, but I want it now. And Absolutely. <laughs> and look, that's one example of when it's just, it surprised me. I even told my husband, I said, oh, you know, she really <laughs> make the right choice and often if she had decided look I'm having it now or all that sort of thing of course there's ways to go about moving them through that but what I'm saying is not every single thing has to become a I agree. Yeah. yeah. It, it often becomes then a battle of the wills, doesn't it? It's, you know, Absolutely. I want it to be done my way. You know, mm. I had to say to my husband on a number of occasions, saying it to him is a reminder to me as well, because I do the same thing. I'll ask my child to do something and they won't do it. And then I have to think to myself, does this really need to be done right now? Or is it okay for me to have just let them know that this needs to be done and they can deal with it in their own time? So long as I give them the parameters, you know, it has to be done before dinner or before you go to school or whatever the requirement is because otherwise it can be really annoying because you kind of want it done now um, and they don't want to do it actually I have the same problem but you know things I want my husband to do interesting that you say that Joe because it's, this is where I feel like starting to be able to perceive the parent-child relationship similarly to sometimes I think as parents and I've heard this incredible example given about how we sometimes do because we're the parent feel like well we need to be on them like whereas maybe you wouldn't be on your husband so much about that you'd sort of give it a bit of breathing room because you're not going to try not to be nagged I guess but I'm having to learn to give everybody breathing room actually yeah, everyone's space and I've heard this wonderful uh, this person and um, I think it's the Gottman Institute and they're a brilliant uh, yes yes you know, overarching for parents and for all relationships yes but they he gives an example of saying if we had 
one of our friends come over for dinner and then they left their umbrella behind and they've always left their umbrella behind whenever they come over and you call them up and you say, you know what, I'm so sick of this, you keep leaving your umbrella behind. How many times have I told you? And just the way we would treat another person is we would just probably call them and say, oh, you, you know, I've got your umbrella, would you like Would you like me to drop it off? Or We're so much more gracious with other people and even he also says, what if they accidentally spilled their glass of wine at the table? Sometimes yes. with our children, like, how many times have I told you to be careful? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some videos online somewhere of a couple of mums acting like kids or oh, I have to find it and link no, it. I think, I think I've seen something recently on Facebook, actually. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Yeah, about. there's there's just these couple of mums that act like as if they were talking to their children and it, it's you know, exactly as you're describing. And it's ridiculous. Yeah, it is completely ridiculous. It makes you laugh so much. For me, with the boundaries thing, what I struggle with, and this also feeds into a question that one of our listeners has, so I'll just tell you what that is as well. But for me, I find that, I think I'm probably a bit too relaxed. You know this because you know me and you see me with Lily. But I'm quite easygoing and a lot of things don't matter to me. So, you know, if she got a chocolate egg, I might not really care because at the end of the day, I probably don't want that battle. If it's just one, if it's more, then maybe I'll change my mind. I'm not very good at setting boundaries. And the question that our listener has is um, in relation to tantrums and also boundaries to some extent. She says, and this is from Jessica, how do we find the right balance between being too soft or too hard with difficult behaviour? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a common question. And to be honest, that's what got me so interested in this, is particularly when my firstborn became a toddler. So that's when they really are getting that will. And you start to actually feel your parent role at that stage around about then because you're like, oh, before we were just sort of chilling together. Now this is different because I have an idea and you have an idea and they clash. This is hard sort of thing. But, I mean, it's interesting what you say. I do think it can be different because I do think if we can understand boundaries in a different way. So sometimes we feel, especially if you tend to be more relaxed, if we feel like, oh, I don't really see the need to set that boundary. But when we start to understand what a boundary means for a child, it actually encourages us that a boundary is a way of showing love to our, especially young children, especially under three. For, for a child, limits are like a safe haven. So when they do feel, even if it is the smallest thing, that they're able to just keep pushing things and then nobody's really letting them know where the edge is. They can actually continue to push more and more and even test, and, and especially as they get to three, they'll even start to test in bigger ways because it's almost like they were saying, somebody help me. It's like a cry for help. And I think if we can view limit setting in a way that says, you know, even if we can't be bothered because I probably am more like you in the fact that I could be like, well, it's not the end of the world. But when you start to put it in a bigger framework for the child, it's probably is really important for them and so the way I learned to love setting boundaries is knowing how to do them so for instance I know the the word tantrum came up in the question Mm -hmm. because what can happen especially with young children is we set a boundary and then we can probably guarantee there's going to be an outburst about it and no matter how small or big the boundary is and sometimes what can happen to parents is they can predict that's going to happen and they really don't want to avoid that so they sometimes move the boundary but it can cause the child to feel even more lost and not really set a precedence for how consistency looks. And so what I really learned early on is that I needed to set a boundary with empathy. So instead of having to always be like strict and sound like serious. So sometimes say, for instance, let's think of a scenario. Often people find it difficult if, I don't know, let's think they want to take something home from the shops or and you're not going to buy it all. I mean, that might be a typical one parent's experience. And often 
no one wants to have a tantrum in the middle of the shop. But mm. I do think sometimes if they've known that, you know, oh, mum will avoid my emotion outburst at all costs, it's really important that in all the small things we've been able to set the boundaries by saying, I can't let you do that, I, you really wish you could, and really acknowledging that yes. it's a genuine difficulty for the child. Like empathy is a really big one when you set the boundary. So mm. it doesn't have to always sound strict and firm. It can actually sound really understanding. Yeah. And that helped me to learn to set boundaries. And My then sister. when the feelings come, you also acknowledge them. Like you really wish that we didn't have to or you really, you know, you sound really upset about that. And children they navigate that so well when we're supportive of that. So This reminds me of conversations with my sister. She's often saying the same thing. And when I hear her with her children, I see that exact behaviour. And we sometimes talk about it. And she talks about letting the child sit in their emotion and letting them feel it yeah. um, and just really acknowledge it and then, and then be able to move on to the next thing. And it's such a gift we're giving them, really, because that's life. We're not going to just be able to avoid all emotions. And, in fact, as parents, of course, we don't like seeing our children in discomfort. But the truth of the matter is trying to keep happiness and stability all the time, first, it's exhausting for a parent. But secondly, it's not really serving our children in the long run anyway. And it's that's the lesson that you taught me a couple of months ago when I was having a hard time or maybe just not trying to get Lily go to bed with her dad. and. Yeah. That's exactly the lesson that you taught me. And I remind myself of that. I would rather be the one that teaches her difficult lessons than a stranger. And that's Yeah, what- absolutely. And and the thing is that that they it's not true suffering. It's actually quite a comforting and beautiful place where they can fall in your safety, like you said, rather than later on having a hard knock and going, Oh, like this is a harder brunt to take than the safety of my parents and and just for me, like like I said, knowing that it was a loving thing to do. And I guess I, I don't know why, but for some reason I used to think if I say no, it needs to be like really firm and no. And, and being able to say, I can't let you do that. And, you know, I really know that it's hard and, and you really wish you could. We wish you could stay at the park. Wouldn't it be great if we could stay all night? Wouldn't it be great? There's so many things that would just be great for everybody. This idea of um, safety um, leads into another question that someone else in our Facebook community asked, and that's Suzanne. And she wanted to talk about the line between minding a child's safety and giving them freedom to explore. And this makes me, of course, straight away think about helicopter parenting, as it can be known. She said that she was recently told by some people that she needed to to be disciplining her daughter and stop her from doing things that were dangerous. And she said, Suzanne said that her view was to remove the danger and then continue to let her daughter to explore and to learn. And she saw this as deflecting her child's curiosity to a safer alternative, whereas other people saw it as weak or she perceived them as seeing her as weak. And she gave the example that her daughter was starting to climb on the handles of the kitchen drawers because everyone wants to see what's going on in the bench tops of course um so rather than you know sort of teaching her no don't climb on the handles they took the bottom drawer handle off so how would you suggest would you say that that, how would you suggest she should have dealt with that scenario i think that that's a really understanding parent who's coming along and trying to see the child as a whole person and and i think when we see it from a child's perspective and not an adult's perspective the child's not seeking to do the wrong thing they're just curious and impulsive and young children are impulsive and curious and they do need the guidance of their adults to know what is safe and unsafe and and look safety is a big one and children of course need our leadership and our our perspective does come in handy when we know something could end more tragically you know if it's genuinely an unsafe thing but I do 
totally believe that what she's doing, removing the danger is wise, but why would we cut off the curiosity? Like she mentioned, I think being able to, I've heard said, whenever possible, follow the child's needs or lead and whenever necessary, take charge. And so sometimes we're having to navigate between, there'll be elements where we take charge but that comes through observation, being certain that there's a risk. And then after that observation again, because I think children are capable and it's us being able to let them know when it is unsafe. I mean, a classic example lately is my youngest daughter. She knows that it's non-negotiable about holding the hand in the car park because that can be so sudden and that's one of my non-negotiables. And lately she's really been trying to say to me, but I'll hold my own hand. And it's just so beautiful and gorgeous because she didn't hold her own hand and she wants to go off, but I let her know. And this is one of these examples where it would be so cute for me to go, oh, that's so cute of you or whatever. But I'm like, no, my leadership in this scenario is I want you to know the car park's not a safe place to just walk off by yourself. And so I will get down to her level and let her know, wouldn't it be so great if you could just walk across with just your own hands, but you're going to need to hold my hand or you can come in my arms. My husband does a great one where he's taught our four-year-old to hold his hand and he'll do things like, can you hold my hand so I won't fall over? Like, so he... <laughs> well, that's the thing. And it doesn't have to be a battle, does it? It can just no. be... Absolutely. Look, I think children's curiosity is important and I think, look, it, it brings into light that whole idea of feeling judged as well because we need to make the decisions we feel are right for our children. And I definitely think helicopter parenting has become something that is making our children more anxious. And Mm -hmm. I think observation is important for a parent. You need to be able to step back first, look, not always just jump right in. And it's assessing the danger, isn't it? Yes, it's assessing, exactly like we would for any workplace. We can't remove everything that could possibly harm our children. But definitely when we've assessed that that is quite a high risk. I mean, we have it a lot even where we encourage children to play in nature and things like that. And, And we have gone through a period of time in Australia where there's been so much legislation around fixing every possible thing but now it is coming back to that time where they can pick up a stick but then we might say could you please hold the stick close to the ground and we will let them know that it is a sharp thing and it can bum someone but we'll obviously be observing yeah exactly we can't remove everything but it is about helping them to navigate that so I think that what she did was quite a a wise observant and encouraging their child's curiosity I, I would say that she's on the right track definitely is there another listener question that we're going to ask, Lucy? Or Yeah, we do have one more listener question, so we can ask you that. This is from Christy. Yeah. She asks, how should we handle sibling rivalry and fighting? Am I right that this is the topic or one of the topics of one of your upcoming events? Well, I definitely, in my, one of my upcoming events, I, I really do talk about what it is like for a young child to welcome a sibling. And look, let's be real, at the, the dawn of a new baby arriving is where sibling rivalry begins. <laughs> and- <laughs> As much as in our society and even parents, we have these grand views of our children being best friends and that the older sister... Don't shatter my dreams, Mandy. Yeah, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) You know, you're going to be such a great big sister, such a great big brother, and and they hear all these things from lovely people who are saying, wow, you get to have a baby. And for the the child, often it's not, wow, I get to have a baby. It's, why are you ruining my life? (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's one of these things that I wish I, again, had known. I feel like everything I've learned has been through trial and error. But I did. we did have these grand views and involved our daughter as much as possible. But little did we know that sometimes even all the hype about having a baby is actually really quite daunting for a, a sibling. And, and so, for instance, 
for, from the very beginning, if you want to talk about siblings, I think being able to allow the older child to feel all their feelings, like we said before, allowing them to, not even allowing them to, but encouraging them to express that they're feeling, here, yeah, I remember my daughter saying, can we put the baby in the bin? And I remember saying, I don't even know, I didn't know much about it, but she said, can we put it in the bin? And I've heard that's quite a common thing. And I just said, you really wish that the baby wasn't coming, you know, wasn't at our house at the moment or just something that really, rather than just being like, no, of course not, the baby's not in the baby's your loving sibling, she'll be your best friend. Children don't really need that. They really just need you to hear, you don't like this, you wish yes. you didn't have to feed, you wish. And just what's the harm in that? A lot of parents fear that that would put a dislike for their sibling in them, but in fact it would do the opposite. It would allow them to get rid of their feeling, well, not get rid of it, but release those feelings mm. of of concern and worry and this continues on you know it doesn't ever go away and I think for me for sibling conflicts and sibling rivalries is firstly it's for parents to just get comfortable with the fact that this is a part of life mm. that there's you're never going to eliminate conflict from your life full stop but definitely not from your home and not from your children because for instance I think sometimes seeing conflict as not necessarily such a bad thing I mean two sisters or brothers who are going to love each other forever being able to practice what it is to have conflict with each other it doesn't always have to be a negative thing and you don't always have to step in right that's Absolutely. I think that's what I think a lot of parents struggle with is at what point do you step in between siblings that are having a bit of a fight Absolutely. And I think this is where, again, a lot of observation comes in and also being able to try and see the parenting, I guess, your role, less of a judge and somebody who comes in to solve the problem and listen to both sides. And I do remember my dad often saying there's always three sides to a story and it's so true. And I think sometimes it's just too difficult for parents. We can't can't know exactly what's going on and sometimes we step in so quickly. And also that takes away the benefit of them experiencing what it is to have the conflict and also to come up with problem solving. So what I often suggest to parents is, of course, we have a role. We can't just let, you know, especially if it's physical, we need to be able to say, I'm going to keep you both safe. But it's definitely trying to come in with a neutral role. And what I often suggest to parents is is using reflective language. So sometimes we don't have to come in straight away. If they're not hurting each other, you can often just come in and say, especially young children, and sometimes parents say, oh, what about the three-year-old and the one-year-old? The one-year-old doesn't understand. Well, so that's why I use this reflective language. So I might say, you had that in your hand, and now such and such has that in his hand, and just literally say what I see. Yeah. And I have been blown away by how sometimes if I've done that, for the children, it's not even about snatching or being, you know, what we perceive it to be. I've had my daughter sometimes go, oh, you have that one and I'll get this. And, and they sort of start to problem solve. And obviously, as they get older, you might even say, this is happening and this is happening and say what you see and then say, what could we do? Uh, I can't live this with you. What can we do? And sometimes it's even less of that. It's just saying, look, everyone seems to be having a hard time today. I'm opening the back door. We're all going out for a snack and just breaking it up. And so there's a variety of ways we can handle it, but, but, but I do think it's about not letting it overwhelm us and it's hard not to because I think we feel the most uncomfortable. I don't actually think the children feel ever comfortable as well. <laughs> and I think you're right. In, 
in letting them figure it out for themselves. I mean, obviously Lily's sibling isn't here yet, but I love this at play school when other children come up and would take something off her. I always love that because she's very shy and I think that gives her a really good opportunity and I just watch and I see what she does. And usually she kind of drops it or walks away and lets the other person have a look at whatever she's got. But occasionally it looks like she's thinking to herself, actually, I was using that and then she'll take it back. And I love just watching those interactions. And I think if we jump in too quickly, they don't get the chance to Absolutely. figure things out Absolutely, yeah, themselves. exactly. And it's so important to be able to be relaxed around that, that conflict. Sometimes for me, it's about watching my children together and thinking to myself, I don't really like the way one child has treated the other, even though the other might not be taking issue with it. You know, like it might be a snatching scenario and the person who's had it snatched off them is kind of like, oh yeah, it's all right. But you've kind of noticed the behavior by the other child and you think to yourself, well, that wasn't really the way that they should have behaved. And I often kind of wonder, do I address that there or do I let it go? Because then it's, it's not bothering the other child. It's not bothering the other child, but it was still inappropriate behavior. I think sometimes in the midst of that act, a lot of people think to go and correct right in the middle of the act is the best option, but sometimes it can exacerbate it because sometimes not even about the object or anything. It's, it's something, possibly it's an externalising of behaviour where something else is going on. And sometimes, depending on the age of the children, of course, I think if the child, if the other child has, has, is not fussed by it at all, I sometimes think going in and then being a part of that almost is non- it's unnecessary. But certainly, especially if they're older, to be able to bring that up and say, and let, let your child know what you, I guess, the values of the family and your expectations. And those are important things that you can. But those are conversations where there is learning that can take place. Sometimes in the midst of an act like that, we think a lesson will go down well, but often because it's not about the object or anything else, the children are not in a place for a lesson. And sometimes a different message can be sent. And I've even had my six-year-old daughter say to me things that are so for me, I feel I'll be under her years, but I do believe because of the way we've interacted with her that she's able to communicate these things where she will say, I've been feeling like you and Daddy take my sister's side. And I just think, isn't that amazing? And then I'll say, I'd love to hear more about that. Can you tell me more about that? And then she'll say, oh, when this happens, and then you pick her up. And then, you know, being able to have these open conversations about so this is an ongoing thing that they feel. Do I have my parents full love? And am I in constant competition with the love they give to my sibling and it's it's quite a intense thing and I've read a fascinating book where they talk about how we see this constantly in adulthood from things that have emerged out of sibling rivalry so it's, it is a fascinating component of development and so sometimes I think less intervention is better and then proper guidance in an appropriate time can help yeah And I think one of the things with kids that we um, all have to learn when we have more than one of them is that they're all going to be different, just like we're all different. And, you know, one child is going to need more from you. Another child will need more of a particular kind of care. And you just have to adapt to each one as they come along three times and I'm still learning. So (laughs) (laughs) and it's just where a lot of parents fall into the trap of trying to keep give everything equal. And I think that's another trap to fall into because at first it's impossible to be equal. And children don't also get served well by if they're having to always measure Yes amount of time what we need to teach them is that the value of your relationship and each relationship is individual. And it's rather than it's 
you know, I've heard of some families buying the exact same thing so no one feels left yes. out or things like that. And that's just going to cause you so much yes. extra yes. work. Or saying that, you know, I'm going to spend Saturday morning for three hours with you so then I'll have to spend Saturday morning next week three hours with the other child or it get, it just becomes really difficult. Whereas one child probably isn't a quality child, they just want to run outside for 10 minutes with you while the other one wants to go on a full-blown outing and that's where it's about individual love languages rather than yes. being fair, I guess. Yes. Um we teach fairness as well, so that's our attitude towards those things. Yeah. Um, Lucy said earlier, and then we kept talking, we've got so many questions, and we do, <laughs> and we've actually got a whole series of questions to ask you about how, as mums, we can make sure that when we're returning to work that we're doing it in the best way for parent and child. So if it's okay with you, we'd love to have you back on again to talk about that specifically. But to close off for today, we want to know... Do you have a mantra, Mandy? Are there words you live by, whether it's in life or your parenting mantra, however you want to answer the question? Oh, a mantra. I probably have hundreds of them. Um, <laughs> um, especially lately and especially in regards to parenting, I always sort of say to myself in my head, don't take it at face value because sometimes I think as parents we can jump in, and this has obviously come through the podcast quite a lot, we can jump in, especially with younger children's behaviour, and just see, you know, I don't like what I'm seeing there or whatever. But what I've learned to do is dig deeper. Every form of behaviour is some sort of communication. Find what's underneath it. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the tip of the iceberg scenario mm-hmm. is that I think this happens in all humans. And I think if we can all start to become people who step back and try and seek understanding, all of our relationships will thrive, but especially with our children. And so, yeah, that's been one of my greatest lessons, I think. With um, A good lesson, dig deeper. Okay. Yeah. If, if you had one piece of advice that you would give to parents like us who are managing this juggle between work and career and family, what would it be? For me, I reckon it would be let's all cut ourselves a bit of slack, yeah. like a bit of grace, because I think... My husband and I are constantly saying this to each other because it truly is a juggle. I love the name of your podcast because sometimes I feel like all the balls are just wherever. Who knows where they are? I've lost like six of them. But <laughs> but I think that whole idea of being gracious to yourself and to each other in a family unit because I think if I'm often pressure on myself, then I'm pressure on myself, oh, you know, and then I put pressure on the kids and mm-hmm. trying to get everything perfect. That's just not going to happen. There's no such thing as perfect. So I think just be gracious to yourself, be kind to yourself, be kind to each other. And there's going to be some good weeks and there's going to be some not so good weeks. So that would be my thing. Thank you so much, Mandy. I'm going to share your website. So our listeners can find you. Your business is called Raise Early Childhood and the website is raiseearlychildhood.com. And we'll also include some links to your social media in our show notes. And check out Mandy's Instagram page because it is very pretty. You do a good job of that. <laughs> I love my favourite colour is yellow. yellow yes. <laughs> Mandy's very kindly offering a free phone consultation to anyone who wants advice about children from zero to six or a $10 voucher towards any of her upcoming events. So, Mandy, if people are interested in this, what's the best way for them to contact you? Either on either of the social media platforms, an inbox or a private message is fine, or an email, which is mandy at com. But we also, we do have a really exciting workshop coming up and we're actually going to be working alongside, I don't know if anybody's heard of the gentle sleep specialist. So that's going to be great because that's all around the idea of infants, especially the early first year of life, but also just around sleep routines, which makes a lot of difference for parents, especially parents returning to work yes. who need to be fresh. 
So look out for that one. That'll come all through the social media uh, feeds as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to having you back again one day. That'll be great. Yes, I'm very excited about being able to share some things around going returning back to work, how to say goodbye at daycare, how to spend quality time when you are with your child. Have you read our list of questions? These are the things I probably spend most of my days talking to people about. Yeah. Things I've had to personally go through and, and being able to be comfortable with returning to work and having children go to daycare or to other care and knowing how to navigate that and not always just walk back to the car crying yourself. <laughs> oh yeah, the days of crying after drop off. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. We will save all of that for, for another day. Thank you so much, Mandy. Thank you. Bye. Probably the biggest thing for me is remembering not to jump in too quick with my kids when they're having a little argument and fight, whatever it might be. Remembering not to take the toy away just because everyone's fighting over it and remembering to let them sort themselves out so that they learn to develop those skills because there's not always going to be someone there standing over them to be the judge and decider. Mm. And similarly for me, I think the biggest thing is similar around boundaries and I'm not very good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, I think, learning to understand that those important lessons that children need to learn are often better coming from us when they're in a place of safety and love than they are them learning them out in the big world, which is scary. Such a beautiful way to say it. (laughs) Of course, we ask the biggest question, which is whether we are harming our children by being working mothers. Stay tuned, stay on board, keep listening. And in a special surprise, we had so much content to share and so many questions for Mandy that we've actually, as we were going through the episode, we realized that we were never going to get through all of our list of questions. We thought, oh, well, we'll just have to bring Mandy back. So we will have another episode with Mandy and it'll be particularly focused about returning to work and how you can best prepare your child for you returning to work. Whether that's the first time you're returning to work or the second time you're returning to work, it doesn't matter because all your kids are going to respond differently. So if you've got questions about that, look out for it in the Facebook group. That's all from us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating and let us know what you think. If you leave us a review, it will really help our show be found by other listeners and so we can get this content to more people. And like we said at the beginning, if you want to continue the conversation with us or have the opportunity to ask questions of our guests, then come and join us on Facebook at The Juggle Community. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash The Juggle Community. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Happy juggling. Happy juggling.